Just a trigger warning before you listen to this episode, it does detail race-based hatred and may be triggering to some listeners. After meeting Yoko Ono, John Lennon decided to turn his life upside down. He was leaving his wife and his child, as well as the biggest band the world had ever seen. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. Michelle Andrews, we're here for part two, the final part two, and I have a question for you. (laughs) Will your voice survive the entirety of this episode? Yeah, let's acknowledge the husky (laughs) voice in the room. It is, it's hanging on. I trust that I will get to the very end, but I mean, we will tell in about an hour's time. Yeah, it'll just get like slowly more (laughs) pronounced as we go. No, I'm really looking forward to this episode, Mish, because I think in the last episode, what we covered was John Lennon's rise to fame how he created the Beatles alongside Paul McCartney and how he met Yoko Ono. And I think when we came into wanting to do this series, we just, to be honest, my focus wanted to be on Yoko Ono, but Mm. you cannot possibly tell the story of Yoko Ono without telling the story of John Lennon at the Beatles. Yeah, and truthfully, when you do tell the story of John Lennon in particular – An unavoidable truth is that John Lennon was not always the most upstanding guy. In fact, he behaved in some really difficult-to-stomach ways, not just in episode one, but as we'll learn also in episode two. And it's it's hard to talk about someone who's passed away in that light, but I think in all of our research – He is a complicated and not entirely likeable character. Yeah, I think that's fair and I think it's also important because the legacy of Yoko Ono is so tied to John Lennon that I think we need to kind of explore him to also explore whether so much of that backlash she got when the Beatles disbanded was fair. Mm. I mean, spoiler alert, (laughs) it wasn't really. We left off the last episode in 1966. Now, John Lennon was only 26, still blows my mind these ages because he was still pretty young, younger than we are right now. And he had just met the 33-year-old Yoko Ono at her art exhibition in a London gallery. Yeah. And I mean, spoiler alert to absolutely no one, he was a serial philanderer in episode one (laughs) and that's not exactly going to change in this episode. Now, a quick reminder before we go back to that 1966 gallery meeting, we are focusing specifically on John Lennon and Yoko Ono in this series. Yes, we know the Beatles were the most adored band of all time. We do not have capacity to discuss everything about the Beatles here. There are so many other podcasts that do that better than we will if you want to go listen to those. Yeah, if you want to hear about John Lennon and Yoko, though, (laughs) stay right here. Mish, let's rewind to 1966 to talk about what happened after that gallery meeting. All right, Zara. So after the 1966 gallery meeting, there is a bit of debate and conjecture about how exactly Yoko Ono and John Lennon went from acquaintances to friends to lovers. Correct. John's wife at the time, Cynthia, has claimed that Yoko actually came after John in a determined pursuit. And that's a quote, sending him letters and cards. She said that Yoko even came to the house looking for him several times. However, Yoko has since admitted that while she was attracted to John after they met, she denied that she was like ever 
chasing after mm. him. She said, I was never standing in front of the gate. That wasn't my style. And anyway, I didn't <laughs> know where the house was. Yeah, she said that when they did bump into each other originally, it was just by fate. Like she happened to be in the same areas that he was and she did send him a copy of her book, Grapefruit, on one occasion as well. In his biography of John Lennon, author Philip Norman said, and I quote, the story of John Lennon and Yoko has always been represented as that of a ski self-aggrandizing woman who marked out the famous Beatle as her quarry at their first meeting, or even before it, and then pursued him with ruthless dedication until she got him. In fact, though, no other pair of famous lovers in history can have come together in quite such a roundabout fashion, nor with so many mutual misgivings. I quite like that quote because I think I know it perhaps might sound like an obvious point and it will sound more and more obvious as this episode goes on, but so much of the story of Yoko Ono has been flattened and kind of written about her without much of the, what seems to be the truth anyway, mm. rising to the surface. So we know at least that after they first met, they were keeping in contact, but for that period of time, John was almost exclusively focusing on his music. I mean, as we know, he sounded pretty obsessive about the music, yeah. hence why the Beatles were as big as they were. <laughs> By the start of 1967, John had little time for anything else but writing and recording with the Beatles. So later the same month that he had met Yoko, he and the Beatles started recording their more sort of experimental concept album called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I'm sure people have heard of that one. They recorded the whole album, not as themselves, but under the name Sgt. Pepper's Band. Too experimental <laughs> for me. It feels a bit more like... Art. It's like us getting on this podcast and be like, today we are not Michelle and Zara. We are Gertrude and what do you want your name to be? Beatrice. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> now, the band released Sgt. Pepper on the 1st of June in 1967. That album, as we now know, was widely acclaimed and topped the UK album charts for 27 weeks, sold half a million copies in the first month, in the US went to number one and was on the charts for 19 weeks and sold 2.5 million copies by August. Just in case any of the other stats we've given you haven't proven how big some of these songs yeah. and these albums were. But in August 1967, the band kind of hit a snag because they were actually away in North Wales, get this, where they were being initiated <laughs> into a transcendental meditation by a spiritual teacher. Just, it's so cliche. I'm so sorry. It's so cliche. It's amazing <laughs> though. But actually two days into that course, they had heard that their manager, Brian Epstein, the guy who actually helped make them stars, had been found dead at his London home. Now, Brian had overdosed on barbiturates. People might remember those from the Marilyn Monroe season mm. and alcohol at the age of just 32. Yeah, and this loss hit John Lennon particularly hard. He actually later admitted in an interview with Playboy magazine that he had an extremely close, in fact, even romantic relationship with Brian. He said, I went on holiday to Spain with Brian, which started all the rumours that he and I were having a love affair. Well, it was almost a love affair, but not quite. It was never consummated, but we did have a pretty intense relationship. And it was my first experience with someone I knew was a homosexual. He admitted it to me. According to the Washington Post, as per the request of Brian's family, the four Beatles didn't attend Brian's funeral, afraid pretty naturally of the media spectacle that it would create. 
And this death of Brian was a really important moment in the slow end mm. of the Beatles. The band relied heavily on Brian. John later admitted that he, and I quote, knew we were in trouble then. I didn't really have any misconceptions about our ability to do anything other than playing music and I was scared. I thought we've fucking had it now. Yeah, and it was around this time that John and Yoko's friendship began to grow stronger and more intense. According to Philip Norman, the author of that biography we mentioned earlier, Yoko had originally thought that John was just an attractive celebrity, but it wasn't until that she actually stumbled upon his books. He actually wrote two books. They were called Lenin in His Own Right and A Spaniard in the Works. Yoko found them at a bookstore dove into them, fell in love with John Lennon's mind and from that moment felt something romantic for him. She said, the books showed me John's soul, a witty, funny and relentlessly romantic spirit with a taste for the grotesque. A taste for the grotesque. (laughs) I mean, it's an acquired taste. It is. (laughs) Anyway, John was also incredibly drawn towards Yoko. He later said that she was, and I quote, the only woman ever who was my equal in every way (laughs) imaginable. My better, actually. Although I'd had numerous interesting affairs in my previous incarnation, I'd never met anyone worth breaking up my happily married state of boredom for. God, he can be a dick. My happily married state of boredom. Imagine being Cynthia Lennon or Julian Lennon, their son, and reading quotes like that. And the best part about it, I think, is John Lennon would be like, what? It's a compliment. It's a happily married state of boredom. Like, that's how it should be. So the relationship between John and Yoko progressed in late 1967 when John actually invited her to a Beatles recording session. Now, at that recording, John said she looked tired and invited her back to a nearby flat. When he started unfolding a sofa bed, very smooth, (laughs) she said she found it quite offensive that he was so overtly trying to sleep with her and she abruptly left. Yeah. But after that meeting, Yoko couldn't stop thinking about John, how he had tried to seduce her and how she had rejected him. She later told the media, I kept thinking I really messed up because always being in the public eye, he couldn't have done it any other way. We couldn't have had a regular date. So I realized I must be falling in love with this guy. So what, she's saying he had to have tried to bed me in his flat on our first kind of like proper date meeting because we can't go get pizza down the road? I think so. Yes, that is what she's saying. (laughs) You could just have pizza down the road, but that's just me. (laughs) Now, she also started sending John postcards, Mish, in plain brown envelopes so that Cynthia wouldn't suspect anything. Yeah. Meanwhile, if you're thinking what is going on between John Lennon and his wife, Cynthia, things had been in crisis mode for a while. Before we get back to Yoko, let's chat a bit about the problems going on in this marriage. So as we mentioned in episode one, The marriage to Cynthia stayed a secret for years. The Beatles manager and the kind of team that they had around the band decided that for John to be endearing to young women, which made up so much of their fan base, he had to appear to be single. Now, that secret came out in late 1963 when journalists turned up on the doorstep of Cynthia and her mother's home asking if she was John's wife incredible stuff because I think people would have been obsessed with it, right? It's like the ultimate story. Yeah. So the Express eventually cornered Cynthia, who naturally denied everything, but they still ran the headline, Beetle John is Married. (laughs) 
John came out with his life story in Mirabelle magazine on the 12th of October. He said that while the band were away in Germany, my girl was home in Liverpool. A little while later, we were married. I love her. As I'm away a lot, she lives with Aunt Mimi. I'd like to tell you more about her, but I have this old-fashioned idea that marriage is a private thing, too precious to be discussed publicly. So forgive me and understand. (laughs) Too precious to be discussed publicly or it's not in my financial interest to discuss it publicly. It's like not precious enough to not like uphold the values of monogamy that you've signed on to. Yeah, so precious, (laughs) but let me go like sleep with a million women every year. One other problem that affected this marriage on top of the secrecy and the cheating was John Lennon's drug use and party lifestyle. So back in 1965, John and Cynthia had attended a dinner with friends where the host secretly put LSD into the guests' drinks for fun. And let me jump in and let the record show (laughs) that we are putting for fun in quotation marks. Yes. Now, at first, apparently John was furious about this, but then he actually began to enjoy the experience. From there, he continued to use LSD, especially while working on the 1966 album Revolver, and that record was where he met Yoko, who was also partial to drug-taking. Yeah, I just think for timeline's sake, like a lot of this drug use was already happening well before he met Yoko. Mm. Now, Cynthia said that through acid, LSD, John's vision did not include what we had, which was us. She said he would also bring home what she later described as, and I quote, a ragged assortment of people he'd met through drugs. And I, I just imagine like raising a young family with a guy that's a rock star, bringing home random people and kind of indulging in these sorts of things. It would be incredibly hard to keep a marriage alive. Yeah. So we've got a history of infidelity. But as far as the Yoko Ono relationship and cheating affair is concerned, how did that begin and how was it outed? Here's what we know for sure. So one night in 1968, while Cynthia was away on holiday, John actually called Yoko Mish in London and asked her to come to his house straight away. Yeah, he spoke to Rolling Stone about this years later and recalled, I called Yoko over, it was the middle of the night and Sin was away. And I thought, well, now's the time that I'm going to get to know her more. She came to the house and I didn't know what to do. So we went upstairs to my studio and I played her all the tapes I'd made, all this far out stuff, some comedy stuff and some electronic music. There were very few people I could play those tapes to. She was suitably impressed and then she said, well, let's make one ourselves. So we made two virgins. It was midnight when we finished and then we made love at dawn. It was very beautiful. (laughs) Imagine your wife going away and be like, this is a great time to get to know a new woman. 100%. The story goes that when Cynthia actually returned, she discovered John and Yoko sitting on the floor of her house wearing identical bathrobes staring into (laughs) each other's eyes. She also saw Yoko's slippers outside their bedroom door and she later recalled she'd been staying with John that night and I came home and they were there. She said that the moment was, and I quote, sort of curtains for our marriage as far as all of us were concerned really. Yeah, so Cynthia left her marital home to go stay with friends with Julian and their marriage was well and truly over by October 1968. That was actually the month when John and Yoko Ono announced that they were having a baby, although sadly, Yoko suffered a miscarriage that November. Yeah, interestingly though, a confusing part about this story is that John actually sued Cynthia for divorce on the grounds that she had allegedly cheated on him with an Italian hotelier, which is an allegation she denies. Regardless, on the 11th of November 1968, 
John and Yoko released the recordings they made that night they got together. They called it Unfinished Music Number One, Two Virgins. Now, the cover is so interesting, Mish, mm. isn't it? It featured a photo of John and Yoko completely naked. And the record actually had to be sold in brown paper or like a brown paper sleeve to cover up the nudity. Yeah, the same month that John and Cynthia had settled their divorce, John dropped his adultery suit against her and eventually Cynthia accepted £100,000 plus an annual payment of £2,400, their marital home at Kenwood and full custody of their son, Julian. Now, you would think this whole cataclysmic life shift has happened and John Lennon's bandmates are watching from the sides and had a plethora of feelings about what John Lennon had done to his young family. Now, famously, Paul McCartney wrote Hey Jude for Julian as a message of comfort and reassurance. According to Philip Norman's biography, the song was originally titled Hey Jules for Julian, but ended up being renamed in the creation process. Yeah, so Hey Jude, as so many people know, went on to become 1968's top-selling single in the UK, the US, Australia and Canada. Mm. It's a total classic. Paul McCartney later told Rolling Stone the song's intro was a hopeful message for Julian. Come on, man, your parents got divorced. I know you're not happy, but you'll be okay. Mm. According to author Bruce Spizer, although Paul McCartney originally wrote Hey Jude for Julian, John Lennon for some reason thought it was written about him. In a 1980 interview, he stated he always heard it as a song to me and contended that he thought it was McCartney giving him and Yoko Ono a blessing for their relationship whilst also expressing disappointment that like the Paul McCartney-John Lennon creative partnership was no longer the most important friendship or partnership to John Lennon anymore. I still kind of see what he's saying in terms of like if he's writing a song for the son about like, hey, letter, literally the quote is like letter into your heart. Mm. I guess that is permission for the relationship, but yeah. it's not as much. I don't really see how the creative relationship is there for, you know. It's also just it. classic John being like, this is about me. Yeah. <laughs> On 20th of March, 1969, almost three years after meeting, John and Yoko got married off the south coast of Spain. He was 28 and she was 36. Yoko wore a mini skirt a wide-brimmed hat, knee-high socks and white runners for the wedding. John wore a white blazer, shirt and matching white runners. Can't wait to share those photos on our Instagram account in our scandal gallery. Now, these two famously also used their honeymoon for peaceful protests. They actually spent the days after their wedding in the presidential suite of the Amsterdam Hilton Hotel. They invited the world's press into their room every day between 9am and 9pm. When journalists would enter that room, they would see John and Yoko sitting in bed in their pyjamas talking about peace with two signs over their heads. One read hair piece and the other read bed piece. The same month, they also famously sent acorns to heads of states in various countries in the hopes that they would plant them as a symbol of world peace. Around this time, John and Yoko also reportedly started using heroin and when the band found out they really didn't know what to do about it. Paul McCartney lady commented on this and said, this was a fairly big shocker for us because we all thought we were far out boys, but we kind of understood that we'd never get quite that far out. Yeah, according to Yoko Ono, the pair did go clean before any serious damage could be done from the heroin use. They later actually also turned that experience into a song. The song Cold Turkey is written about Yoko and John getting off heroin. Guys, we are going to take a break. We've covered a lot of content. 
after the break, there is so much more to discuss. I know, we're not even there yet. We have so much to do. But first, let's hear a word from today's sponsor. Alrighty, Mish. We've spoken about the rise of the Beatles. We've spoken about the relationship between John and Yoko, but we haven't yet reached the end of the Beatles, which is what we're going to do right now. Mm. Around this time, things weren't going swimmingly for the Beatles. (laughs) Let's do a little recap of what had been going on for the band as John was falling in love with Yoko. Yeah, well, according to Rolling Stone, the Beatles' partnership had been fraying. In particular, that really seminal relationship between John Lennon and Paul McCartney, they were kind of like the heart of the band, right? They they were were the creators, the founders of the band, and so much of the creative direction as well. As Rolling Stone put it, John Lennon, the band's founder, had in some ways acquiesced leadership of the band. More importantly, he was beginning to feel he no longer wanted to be confined to the Beatles, whereas Paul McCartney loved the group profoundly. It was what he lived for. One thing they were inspired to do at this point, though, Mish, was to start performing live again, and they decided at this point to film their recording sessions. So as they did this, animosity continued to fester, and that wasn't helped by the fact that John had invited Yoko to all of the (laughs) Beatles' recording sessions. Now, as Rolling Stone wrote, this bothered George. Here's a quote from that piece. Harrison now found that Yoko Ono sometimes had a voice in bad matters that equaled or even bested his. Worse though, Lennon and Ono were now practising what was known as heightened awareness (laughs) based on a belief that verbal communication was unnecessary between people tuned in to larger truths. Its real effect, however, was to shut down any meaningful or helpful interactions. When crucial issues came up, Lennon would say nothing, deferring to whatever Ono thought, which drove his bandmates crazy. Yeah. Now, Paul McCartney says that the band largely tolerated Yoko's presence because they really desperately did not want to lose John. At one point, reportedly, John and George got into a fight so bad that they were throwing punches. George ended up storming out of the session. Later that day, reportedly, and I'll quote this piece, Yoko Ono took George's place, picked up a microphone and launched into a wordless blues as the remaining Beatles joined in, not sure what else to do if they wanted to keep John Lennon from bolting as well. Yeah, according to Rolling Stone, the Beatles were pretty fed up with Yoko Ono's presence. When the band met to try and resolve their problems, John said, Yoko only wants to be accepted, she wants to be one of us, to which Ringo Starr replied, she's not a Beatle, John, and she never will be. John apparently dug in his heels saying, Yoko is a part of me now, we're John and Yoko, we're together. Yeah, so omnipresent was Yoko Ono in these recording sessions that even after she suffered a car accident, John Lennon installed a bed on the studio floor so his wife could rest and watch the sessions. Now, reportedly none of the other Beatles said much about this. According to Rolling Stone, who spoke to their recording engineer, Phil McDonald, the three of them were a little scared of John. John was a powerful figure, especially with Yoko, a double strength. Despite all of this, though, the band was still able to create music, which is pretty exceptional. And in September 1969, they put out their final album, Abbey Road, which of course included hits like Here Comes the Sun. Now, the week that the album was released, the band had a meeting with their manager and with Yoko and... Paul was trying to convince the rest of the group to go back to what they were good at and to do another tour. John apparently (laughs) responded, 
I think you're daft. I wasn't going to tell you, but I'm breaking the group up. It feels good. It feels like a divorce. What does he mean I wasn't going to tell you? (laughs) (laughs) So it goes without saying everyone was shocked about this. The Beatles' new manager really asked John not to announce his decision for a few months to preserve a deal that they had just negotiated with their recording label that would give the band more royalties. Even Yoko was not thrilled about the idea of John Lennon leaving the Beatles. She later told author Philip Norman, we went off in the car and he turned to me and said, that's it with the Beatles. From now on, it's just you, okay? I thought, my God, those three guys were the ones entertaining him for so long. Now I have to be the one to take the load. Pretty self-aware of her. Yeah. Abbey Road is released to the world. The public don't know that the Beatles are over. In fact, they don't know for some time. It takes about six or seven months for the public to find out about this. It wasn't until April 1970 when Paul, who was doing press for his first ever solo album, confirmed that the Beatles had broken up. The original Guardian article from the time reads as follows. Paul McCartney confirmed yesterday that he had broken up with the Beatles. He also said that he had no plans to record with other Beatle members in the future, that he could not imagine writing with John Lennon again, and that in making his first solo album, he had not missed the talents of the other Beatles. Oh, my God. Paul explained that he decided to be transparent with what was going on to the public because, and I quote, I was fed up of hiding it. Paul made it very clear, though, that it was not his wish to end the Beatles. The breakup was, and I quote, the most difficult period of my life. This was my band. This was my job. This was my life. So I wanted it to continue. John was furious that Paul had stolen what he felt like was his right to break up the band. (laughs) He said, I started the band. I disbanded it. It's as simple as that. Unfortunately, so many members of the public actually blamed Yoko Ono, the only woman in the scenario, for actually causing the end of the Beatles. And again, a quick trigger warning before we jump into the next few minutes. We will detail some racial slurs that were leveled at Yoko Ono because some of the coverage was horrendous and that might be triggering for some of our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So Yoko Ono was frequently called Jap, Chink and Yellow and the hatred was so intense that John Lennon sometimes had to shield her from physical harm. Yeah, others gave Yoko the very racist nickname Dragon Lady and decades later... Yoko said that she took the insult in her stride and said she was kind of honoured to be a dragon lady. The dragon is a very powerful mythical animal. Well, probably they think I'm powerful. Thank you very much. The New York Times wrote that Yoko was, and I quote, cast as the groupie from hell, a sexually domineering dragon lady and a witch who hypnotised Lennon into spurning from the lads for some woman. It's very interesting that Yoko Ono had to kind of take all of this in her stride. Yes. You don't have any other option if you're in her situation, right? It's very sad that she had to say, okay, well, they're saying that I'm powerful and I'm going to take that in my stride. Like she shouldn't have to do that. Absolutely. And it shouldn't be like the marker of strength or whatever it is. Mm -hmm to hear her having to do that or be forced to do that. Yeah, to give another example of how intense this racism was, in the year of 1970, so the year after the Beatles broke up, Esquire published an article titled John Rennan's Exclusive Gloopy. Now, of course, if you change around some of those letters, it reads John Lennon's Exclusive Groupie and it promised to reveal the Yoko Nobody Onos. 
the article was pretty disgusting and it also featured an illustration of a Yoko Ono looming over a cockroach with the head of John Lennon. As the New York Times explained, these slurs would spiral into an indefatigable pop culture meme that has haunted generations of women accused of intruding on male genius. Wow. Years on, John Lennon wrote of the racism that Yoko Ono received during this time. He wrote, Having been brought up in the genteel poverty of a lower middle class environment, I should not have been surprised by the outpouring of race hatred to which we were subjected in that bastion of democracy, Great Britain. It was hard for Yoko to understand, having been recognised all her life as one of the most beautiful and intelligent women in Japan. The racism and sexism were overt. I was ashamed of Britain. Yeah. So Yoko Ono was absolutely the public's pinata for the Beatles breaking up. But with hindsight, let's unpack this. Did she actually influence the breaking up of the world's biggest band? Yeah, and it goes without saying that if she even did, which I will argue that she didn't in a second, but even if she did, there is just not a world and not a world where any of that coverage should have taken place or any of those insults or that racism should Mm. have taken place. But the truth is for many people, elements of yes, elements of no, right? Did Yoko set up to break up the Beatles? It really doesn't look that way. Because even if she did, she probably wouldn't have been able to break them up if their camaraderie and their bond was what it had been Mm. back in the day. John had already told us that his passion for the Beatles was waning after all. Yeah. In an interview with Playboy magazine a decade on, John Lennon said that his trip to Spain in 1966, before he even knew who Yoko Ono was, was what changed everything for him. He said, I was there for six weeks. I wrote Strawberry Fields Forever there, by the way. It gave me time to think on my own away from the others. From then on, I was looking for somewhere to go, but I didn't have the nerve to really step out on the boat by myself and push it off. But when I fell in love with Yoko, I knew, my God, this is different from anything I've ever known. This is something other. This is more than a hit record more than gold, more than everything. It is indescribable. John explained that meeting Yoko had shifted something in him. He had for a few years wanted to leave the Beatles, but meeting Yoko and falling in love with her had kind of given him the courage to go out and do what he had wanted for so long. Yeah, exactly. He also fought back against the perception that he was under Yoko's spell. He said, nobody controls me. I am uncontrollable. The only one who controls me is me. And that's just barely possible. He also pointed out how the claims against Yoko and him were steeped in misogynistic ideas about how powerful or assertive women were naturally manipulative or controlling. He said, nobody ever said anything about Paul having a spell on me or my having one on Paul. The band spent more time together in the early days than John and Yoko, the four of us sleeping in the same room, practically in the same bed, in the same truck, living together night and day, eating, shitting and pissing together, all right, doing everything together. Nobody said a damn thing about being under a spell. He's not a perfect human, but But in this case, I'm very impressed that a man from this era is sharing this sentiment. Like I'm, I'm, it's refreshing. John did imply that Yoko helped him see a world without the Beatles. Asked why he was able to see a way out, he explained, Yoko showed me the possibility of the alternative. She'd say, you don't have to do this. I don't, really? Of course, it wasn't that simple and it didn't sink in overnight. It took constant reinforcement. Walking away is much harder than carrying on. I've done both. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Last year, Peter Jackson, who actually directed and wrote Lord of the Rings, released a documentary that a lot of our listeners might have watched, Mish. It was called Get Back about the Beatles and it was based on more than 60 hours of archival footage. You can find it on Disney Plus if you're interested Mm. in watching it. Now, it's important to note that Yoko herself was actually a producer of the series, but What's been interesting is that many people have said that the documentary is evidence that Yoko wasn't responsible for ending the band. Peter Jackson himself told 60 Minutes that she's a very benign presence and she doesn't interfere in the slightest. Yeah, he went on, I can understand from George and Paul and Ringo's point of view, it's like a little strange. But the thing with Yoko is that she doesn't impose herself. She's writing letters, she's reading letters, she's doing sewing, she's doing painting, sometimes some artwork off to the side. The New York Times, though, argued that Yoko's appearance in the studio was obtrusive. The paper wrote, the band forms a tight circle in the corner of a movie soundstage. Inexplicably, Yoko Ono is there. She perches in reach of John Lennon, her bemused face oriented towards him like a plant growing to the light. When Paul McCartney starts to play, I've got a feeling Ono is there, stitching a furry object in her lap. When the band starts into Don't Let Me Down, Ono is there, reading a newspaper. Lennon slips behind the piano and Ono is there, her head hovering above his shoulder. Later, when the group squeezes into a recording booth, Ono is there, wedged between Lennon and Ringo Starr, wordlessly unwrapping a piece of chewing gum and working it between Lennon's fingers. When George Harrison walks off, briefly quitting the band, there is Ono, wailing inchoately into his microphone. I find this quote really interesting about this documentary because you hear all of that and I'm like, surely this is one just big piece of performance art for Yoko Ono. Like surely this to me reads not like someone who's trying to infiltrate the band but who is an artist and an artist who knows this is being filmed Mm, and is just doing one big performance. I think this is the one tidbit in this series that I can see. I I kind of feel like I'm split between both sides. It is intrusive to have a group and have someone's presence there 24-7 who's not a member of that brand. That would be distracting. It would be confusing. It would mess with the dynamics of the group. On the other hand, is she actually weighing in and changing the day-to-day decisions in like a very overt way? No, I think I can see it from both perspectives. If you said to me, Ollie's going to come in every (laughs) day and sit next to me and massage gum between my fingers as we work, would I find that intrusive? A thousand percent. Yeah, but I'm not John Lennon and he is not. Do you know what I mean? These people have different ideas about art and life and how to live and it was probably quite normal for them. Of course it's intrusive. Like Mm. not many people would like it. But if you want John Lennon in your band, that's the price you pay. Like that's how he lives his life and that's why he was the genius that he was. I think as well... This is a couple who are incredibly codependent. They do not want to be apart. When John Lennon and Yoko Ono were good and happy in their romantic relationship, they wanted to be by each other's side, like physically touching or like hovering over each other. That is who they were as a couple. Does that mean she broke up the Beatles? No. No, not at all. But it does mean it would have been a little thing that they had to deal with and kind of learn to deal with. Now, after the Beatles broke up, John and Yoko actually continued to work on music together and contributing to human rights and peacekeeping projects, particularly in the anti-war movement. They moved to New York and in 1971, John actually released two major works, the song Power to the People and his very famous album, 
imagine. Yeah. Meanwhile, around this time, tragedy struck Yoko. Now, if you listen to episode one, and we hope you did, you'll remember that Yoko had a daughter with her ex-husband, Anthony. Her daughter's name is Kyoko. But Yoko was not the most attentive mum. So in interviews, she did admit that she was, and I quote, an offbeat mother who wasn't particularly good at taking care of her daughter. In 1971, a court had actually granted Anthony temporary custody of eight-year-old Kyoko and only gave Yoko Ono visitation rights. Now, this story took a turn off a cliff that year when Kyoko and Anthony, her dad, joined a religious cult known as the Church of the Living Word and disappeared. Yeah, and Yoko didn't see her for years Mm. and years and years. Fast forward to 1973, so two years after Yoko lost custody of Kyoko, John and Yoko actually separated as a couple. Part of the reason why Yoko separated from John was because of the pressure that she was facing for being the one who broke up the Beatles. She told Playboy the pressure from the public being the one who broke up the Beatles and who made it impossible for them to get back together. My artwork suffered too. I thought I wanted to be free from being Mrs. Lennon, so I thought it would be a good idea for him to go to LA and leave me alone for a while. Before, I was doing all right, thank you. My work might not have been selling much. I might have been poorer, but I had my pride. But the most humiliating thing is to be looked at as a parasite. Yeah, John said that he was an alcoholic during this time as well. He told Playboy, I was just trying to hide what I felt in the bottle. I was just insane. It was the lost weekend that lasted 18 months. I've never drunk so much in my life. I tried to drown myself in the bottle and I was with the heaviest drinkers in the business. Reflecting as well on Yoko leaving him, John said, well, at first I thought, whoopee, whoopee, you know, bachelor life, whoopee. God, he's a dickhead sometimes. And then I woke up one day and I thought, what is this? I want to go home. But Yoko wouldn't let me come home. That's why it was 18 months apart instead of six months. During their separation, Yoko not only agreed for him to have a relationship with another woman, there's kind of a, a complicated element to this story because she actually suggested someone who could fill that role for him. It was a woman named Mei Pang, a 22-year-old Chinese-American who had worked as an assistant to both of them. Yeah, and this is one of the more difficult elements of this story, as you said. In a 2011 interview, Mei Pang spoke of this time. She said, Yoko came to me at 9.30 in the morning, I hadn't even had my first cup of coffee, and said, May, I've got to talk to you. John and I are not getting along. I knew this because the tension in the house was thick. She said, he's going to start going out with other people. I know you don't have a boyfriend and I know you're not after John, but you need a boyfriend and you would be good for him. I said I didn't think so, but she said, you don't want him to go out with somebody who's going to be nasty to him, do you? I said, of course not. She said, you will be perfect and walked out. Now, we can't talk about this without talking about the power dynamic. You have two of the most famous people in the world going to a 22-year-old member of staff and pressuring her. I mean, according to that quote, they pressured her into dating someone she did not want to date. Yeah, 100%. It leaves a really weird taste in the mouth, doesn't it, having seen this element to the story. In January 1975, though, Yoko and John actually decided to get back together. Yoko said she got back together with John after, and I quote, it slowly started to dawn on me that he was not the trouble at all. John was a fine person. It was society that had become too much. Mm, When they got back together, they 
basically instantly decided that they wanted to start a family. The quote goes, we got back together, decided this was our life, that having a baby was important to us and that anything else was subsidiary to that. Now, they had struggled to conceive in the past. We briefly mentioned that Yoko had a miscarriage. In fact, doctors had told them that they would never be able to have a child. But This time around, that proved to be false. Yeah, so on October 9, 1975, which was John's 35th birthday, John and Yoko gave birth to their son, Sean. Yoko was 42 at the time. And after Sean was born, John took a break from working and became, well, so they say, he became a house (laughs) husband. It was kind of the opposite kind of life that he was leading when his first son Julian was born Mm. while he was with Cynthia. Yeah, and over the next five years, John said that he spent his days, and I quote, baking bread and looking after the baby. He said, bread and babies, as every housewife knows, is a full-time job. After I made the loaves, I felt like I had conquered something. But as I watched the bread being eaten, I thought, well, Jesus, don't I get a gold record or knighted or something? I mean, at least he's self-aware again. (laughs) Between 1975 and 1980, John actually largely retreated from music not releasing an album during that time. And it very much seems like with hindsight going back through the archives that the two of them largely retreated from public view because Mm. there's not a lot you can find on them between the years 1975, as I said, and 1980. But fast forward to 1980 and Playboy magazine interviewed Yoko Ono and a now 40-year-old John Lennon. And not only is it a really brilliant and especially candid conversation with the couple, it was also one of their last major interviews. Yeah, in that interview, John made it crystal clear that the Beatles were never getting back together, adding that he hadn't seen any of his former bandmates in, and I quote, I don't know how much time. It was also abundantly clear in this interview just how much love there was between John Lennon and Yoko Ono. He said that they actually almost had a teacher-student dynamic. He said, that's what people don't understand. She's the teacher and I'm the pupil. I'm the famous one, the one who's supposed to know everything, but she's my teacher. She taught me everything I fucking know. Yoko also said she learned a bunch from John too. She said, well, he had a lot of experience before he met me, the kind of experience I never had, so I learned a lot from him too. It's both ways. Maybe it's that I have a strength, a feminine strength, because women develop it in a relationship. I think women really have the inner wisdom and they're carrying that while men have the sort of wisdom to cope with society since they created it. Men never developed the inner wisdom. They didn't have time. So most men do rely on women's inner wisdom, whether they express it or not. Yeah, one particularly bittersweet topic that was talked about in this Playboy piece was actually John's relationship with his first son, Julian. He did say that he saw Julian on holidays and that there was a line of communication between them, but admitted that it wasn't the best relationship between father and son, adding that Julian was, and I quote, obliged to communicate with me even when he probably doesn't want to. He did add that now that Julian was almost 18, they would have the chance to have a relationship in the future. Yeah, unfortunately, as we know, Mitch, they didn't actually get the chance because on the 8th of December 1980, John Lennon was murdered. Yeah, so what the hell happened? John and Yoko had just returned to their New York apartment from a recording session when a man named Mark David Chapman shot John Lennon twice in the back and twice in the shoulder at close range. 
Chapman didn't run. He did not flee the scene. In fact, when police showed up, he was leaning against the building's brickwork, reading the catcher in the rye. Very, very eerie image, that one. Mark David Chapman had no prior criminal convictions, but is said to have been incensed, apparently, with Lennon's quotes about religion. In an interview with Jack Jones, who actually wrote a book about the murder, Chapman said, I would listen to this music and I would get angry at him for saying that he didn't believe in God, that he just believed in him and Yoko, and that he didn't believe in the Beatles. This was another thing that angered me, even though this record had been done at least 10 years previously. I just wanted to scream out loud, who does he think he is saying these things about God and heaven and the Beatles, saying that he doesn't believe in Jesus and things like that. At that point, my mind was going through a total blackness of anger and rage. Mm. John was dead by the time emergency workers got him to Roosevelt Hospital. He was declared dead at 11.15pm and he was just 40 years old. Yeah, and all these years later, Mark David Chapman is still behind bars. The hospital, as we know, this is what happens. We set it in the Heath Ledger series, Zara, turned into a total media frenzy when news broke. As New York Magazine described, the paparazzi, thieves of the mojo, arrived by the dozens, waiting to steal the spirit of anyone left alive. Legitimate reporters and photographers were there too, and a lot of cops, and then slowly, as word spread, a few fans. Some of the reporters fought for the two telephones in the emergency room. A woman TV reporter marched in with the crew and tried to walk through the doors to the room where the doctors had been working on John Lennon. The worst of the world, surely, Mm. when Mm. celebrities die. I think we've heard this quite a lot on the podcast, particularly doing these scandal episodes and and doing the scandal research is when celebrities die, it does not show a good side of the media. There was no big funeral. Instead, a silent vigil was held. Yoko issued a statement declaring that John loved and prayed for the human race. Please do the same for him. He was cremated and Yoko scattered the ashes at Central Park opposite the Dakota where John was shot. Two years after he died, she actually told the BBC's Tom Brooks, he is still alive, he's still with us, his spirit will go on, you cannot kill a person that easily. Yeah, and this all begs the question, where is Yoko Ono today all these years on? Well, this year in February, she'll turn 89. And incredibly, while her daughter Kyoko eventually escaped the Church of the Living Word in 1977, the mother and daughter were not reunited until 1998. That means that Yoko Ono did not see her own daughter between the ages of 8 and 35. It's going to be incredibly tough. For after John died, she went on to have a relationship with a man named Sam Havertoy, an interior designer and artist who was about 20 years younger than her. Now, interestingly, around the relationship between Sam and Yoko, there are some rumours that exist on websites like The Mail on Sunday who Mm. aren't the most sort of... Reputable. Not always the most (laughs) reputable source, that they were actually having an affair before John Lennon died. But we couldn't find anything robust to confirm that, but then also felt like we kind of couldn't ignore the fact that there were these reports and rumours that existed too. Yeah. The LA Times actually interviewed them both in 1990 and pointed out that they had both been painted as crass opportunists for pushing out John Lennon memorabilia mish. Yeah. When this line of questioning arose, Sam replied, nobody is asking that question about Marilyn Monroe's estate or about the Graceland tours and the 1,500 licenses out on Elvis Presley. We have four licenses, T-shirts, posters, calendars, greeting cards. There are no rules for dealing with the memory of a rock and roll hero who was murdered. Sam also pointed out that there was a 
hypocrisy to the demands the fans were placing on Yoko. He said after John's death, newspapers wrote that Yoko was this selfish person hoarding John's memory, controlling it, not willing to share it with the fans. So after two years, she puts out 200 hours of film footage and a record and they say she's exploiting his memory. She can't win. I agree with that. It's like, what are you meant to do? Share the legacy or keep it to yourself? You're going to be denigrated at either side of the coin. Yoko and Sam eventually broke up in 2000 and according to a report from the New York Post last year, she lived primarily at the Dakota, the same apartment building in New York where she and John lived and the place where he was shot in 1980. Yeah, we have covered so much in this series and I think all of it begs a question about reputation as well as legacy because... Speaking about John very briefly, because I know we want to finish on Yoko, it really brings that question to mind of someone can be so great for the world on a macro level and quite toxic on a micro level. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that was the case for John Lennon, which is an interesting like philosophical question to toss around. What makes being a terrible person or a dodgy person on a micro level okay? Yeah. Or what makes a good person full stop, I guess. I I think we find it with a lot of really, really famous people and not just really, really famous people, but like genius level famous people because they kind of do have this like God complex in some ways because they are so incredibly talented and the world rewards that for good reason. Mm. But I think it really does change your behavior on a day-to-day level. When it comes to Yoko Ono, there was a really interesting line in a piece for Vulture by Lindsay Zolads who wrote, why is it such a perennial youthful rite of passage to misunderstand, to underestimate, even to hate Yoko Ono? What is this strange power she continues to yield? Yeah. I kind of hope as, as time goes on that slowly the narrative is changing when people learn properly the story of Yoko Ono and John Lennon and the downfall of the Beatles because, yes, she was there and, yes, as we've said, she was probably an uncomfortable presence for other members of the band but no single person, certainly not a woman in this scenario, can single-handedly bring down the biggest band in the world. It's really impressive how Yoko Ono stood so strong in the face of the absolute storm that the world threw at her. Her son, Sean, actually told Harper's Bazaar, When people have asked her how she has dealt with all this hate that's been focused on her since she met my dad and the bad press and the misunderstandings and the blaming of her for the things that were outside of her control, I've heard her say, well, it's all just energy. I do think in a way she does thrive off energy, whether it's good or bad, and she manages to somehow refocus that impulse into something positive. Pretty impressive, that is for sure. Mish, that is all we've got time for today. So much to cover and yet... When it comes to the Beatles, so much more we haven't been able to cover. It's It's never enough. It's never enough. But I've really enjoyed this story. I didn't know a whole lot about Mm. the ins and outs of this story. And I think one thing is true, and that is that the story of Yoko Ono, hopefully, as I said before, is retold and retold and retold again until the legacy becomes a legacy she deserves. Yeah, a more accurate one for sure. How's my voice doing one hour in? Holding up, it seems. It's not too bad. Sometimes I hear myself say something, I'm like, who is that person? (laughs) It reminds me of Phoebe Buffay (laughs) in the episode of Friends. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. 
as always, we are on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. We will have a gallery of photos from this time up for you. We are on TikTok too at Shameless underscore podcast. Mish, anything to add? Well, just a huge thank you to our researcher, Justine Landis-Hanley, who did incredible work on this series, as she does with every series under the Scandal banner. Yeah, and thanks as well to Annabelle Lee, who helped fact check some of it too. It was a mammoth project, and we are so very grateful for everyone who touches these episodes. Yeah, guys, thank you. We'll be back in your ears on Thursday. Bye. Bye. Bye.